Some time back, we received a notice from the UC Davis News Service about an award, which went to Gita Coker, Assistant Professor in the Department of Plant Pathology here at UC Davis, and I was attracted to this issue right away because I don't know anything about plant pathology, but it's certainly an important topic. Uh, apparently, Davis has won a five-year, almost million-dollar um, award from the National Science Foundation to support research in science education. And I thought this would be a fun topic to talk about, and to help me do that is the winner of the award. Gita Coker is, is Assistant Professor in the Department of Plant Pathology here at UCD, and I'm happy to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Coker. Oh, thank you very much. I was really thrilled to be able to receive the award. Um, and it's true, a lot of people actually don't know very much about um, plant pathology and plant diseases. But it turns out that plant diseases are very important for agriculture. It can um, control up to 20% of total crop losses, which is very significant. And like animals and like humans, plants also have immune systems that can specifically recognize different types of pathogens. And another kind of interesting thing is that um, plants can be attacked by all different types of pathogens. So viruses can infect plants, uh, so can bacteria, and bacteria is primarily what I work on, but also fungi can uh, infect plants and fungus-like organisms, as well as insects. So plants are really out there, and unlike humans, they can't move, so where, wherever the seed germinates is where they're stuck. Well, everything that attacks plants attacks people and animals and vice versa. So let, I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, most of us are familiar with the human immune system, even back to health class probably in high school, and they talk about our bloodstream and white cells that will attack invaders and various antibodies that we have. Since plants don't have a, have a, have a vascular system like we do, it's a whole different ballgame. How do plants defend themselves? So there's a couple different ways that plants can defend themselves. I guess it can be broken up into whether plants are actively or passively resisting infection. So you can envision that the plant is covered in a waxy cuticle, they have a thick cell wall, so that can act as a barrier to initial pathogen colonization. Aside from that, plants can also actively respond to uh, microbial pathogens. And as you mentioned, you know, the plants don't have a circulating immune system, so what they have to rely on is their preformed or innate immune system. So um, as humans, you have adaptive immunity, so you have these antibodies that you've, you get sick with the flu. This year, if it's the exact same strain of the flu that's around a couple of months from now, you're not going to get sick. Plants don't have that, so that whatever their seed genotype is, is basically what they're going to be resistant to. Um, so plants can use uh, receptors that are present on the surface of the cell to recognize non-self um, uh, molecules. So an example of that might be part of a pathogen cell wall or flagella for bacteria, something that the pathogen can't really get rid of um, and that's not present in the plant, that the plant would basically say, okay, well this is non-self and now we need to mount a defense response. Plants can also use um, receptors that are present inside the plant cell to specifically recognize um, pathogen proteins that are injected into the host cell during infection. And we kind of study both of those uh, aspects. So. Well, I'm, I'm gathering, and I'm looking at the innate immune system from Wikipedia to help me do this, but I'm gathering that humans and plants are maybe not so different in that, um, in that some of our, our natural responses to a foreign invader are kind of analogous to what plants do. Like, say, you, you, you get your, your thumb pricked on a, um, a rose bush or something, you immediately start swelling up with inflammation. And I guess that's the proteins and things involved in that are kind of what plants are relying on. 
Right. If we look at the molecular level, at the types of um, proteins or receptors that can recognize pathogens, there's a lot of similarity between animals and plants. So the proteins look very similar if you look at them. What appears to be different is downstream from activation. Um, so some of the receptors are, are similar that might recognize um, a bacterial pathogen that would infect you or I, or a bacterial pathogen that would infect plants. Um, but some of the downstream responses are different. I hope we won't get too technical looking into that because I imagine it gets fiendishly complicated pretty quickly. But how, how would a plant, uh, say a bacteria invades a plant or a virus, and it's looking for something and it say, hey, this is not self, and it wants to go on the attack, what does it do next? What it can do next is um, there's lots of different changes in gene expression. Um, and so instead of putting a lot of energy into making food, the plant will put a lot of energy into making uh, reactive oxygen species, things like that, that can attack the pathogen. The other kind of interesting thing that the plant does is um, there's a program cell death that occurs at the site of infection. So what will happen is the bacteria will be there and that plant cell that's in contact with the bacteria will actually die. Um, so the bacteria can no longer get uh, food or other nutrients and also that produces a lot of um, reactive oxygen species that can then attack the bacteria as well. So if you look in a field, if you have a resistant plant, um, just by eye, the plant looks healthy. But if you look microscopically, you can see if there was a pathogen that tried to attack it, you'll see small amounts of, of individual cell death. Well, in my neighborhood, there, there are a bunch of elm trees. I think they're elms. And I've noticed in the past few years, every so often, something comes in there and makes the leaves look pretty terrible. And I guess the plant just responds by shedding the leaves and starting over, which is a hell of a strategy I wish people had. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what that's pretty routine just like you're invaded in this leaf drop it off and start over that's yeah that that is routine and it's it's also for for that type of a response it, it works well for uh, tree species as as you can imagine because um, those are, are plants that are going to be surviving for many different years and so if they can um, shed their existing leaves and then grow new leaves then that's one strategy. Another thing is you know to kind of just grow out of the infection if it's something like a tomato that gets infected early on if they can put more strategy into um, growing better then um, the plant can actually grow out of the infection later on. Which plants do you primarily focus on in the research that, that uh, your lab's doing? So we work on a couple of different types of plants. Um, we work on tomato, uh, lettuce, and then we also work on the model plant, Arabidopsis. It's related to brassicas like um, broccoli, and we like to use it because it has uh, really small genome size. Its genome's completely sequenced, and you can do a lot of different things with it that you can't do with some another type of a plant that maybe you can't transform as well or is much larger, has a larger generation time. I don't know if this is slightly off topic, but I've always been fascinated by the fact that I guess we've come to appreciate in recent years that uh, you attack one tree in a forest and the tree lets other trees know that it's under attack. And I guess it just, it's done by hormones. Is that... Right, so there are some, some hormones and also there's some volatiles that plants can uh, produce, some chemical volatiles, and that will signal to other um, plants that, hey, there's an intruder there and you should ramp up defenses so that if those neighboring plants were tried to be, uh, were infected or were attacked, that they would be more resistant. Plants also have some, uh, uh, something that's pretty interesting that it's called systemic acquired resistance, and that what happens there is if they're infected, 
by a pathogen, um, then they, the rest of the plant becomes more resistant. So there's a signal that goes to the rest of the plant. So if they, there was a bacteria that came in, caused an infection, didn't do too much damage, so the plant was able to get rid of the pathogen or it didn't really progress across the entire plant. Then if another virus or another bacteria came along within a week or so, that plant would be more resistant to that um, than previous. I find that very fascinating. Have we, have we deduced what the, what all those different compounds are? Is that is that just a work in progress? In some instances, we have a, a pretty good idea, and uh, but I would say, like for most things in science, it's still a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we have, a, with respect to the um, innate immune system for uh, plants, we have a pretty good idea of the receptors that can recognize. Um, different pathogens, but what we don't know is once those receptors are activated, how does that culminate in defense uh, signaling, how does that culminate in this program cell death and disease resistance. So there's still somewhat of a black box for some of these early steps. And that's what the um, NSF Career Award is for. We're interested in figuring out right after a recognition what happens and how does that lead to defenses. And how similar are, um, is recognition that occurs at the cell surface versus inside the cell? How similar is that signaling? I'm imagining that this may have some application in, in, in non-plants as well, I, I would think. Some of this pr process is being similar? Yeah, yeah. So we think that there, there may be some applicability to um, uh, human or other animal systems with respect to uh, mechanism. Well, I, I, one thing I love about this university is that we have a Department of Plant Pathology because it's always struck me that if I were a Martian and I wanted to take down the human race, I'd go after wheat, corn, and rice. And these things are the whole basis of civilization. And, and I, you know, I think this is um, terribly, terribly important. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's um, very important to be able to help control plant disease. Um, and especially if you consider the fact that the population only continues to grow and that there's a significant loss for plant disease. We really need to be able to um, harness our knowledge about um, plant immune responses and incorporate that to producing um, more viable, uh, higher yielding agriculture to be able to feed the world. Well, men have always, and, and women have always gone out and found a resistant plant and selected for that one, and we can still do that, but do you think your research might allow us to activate uh, something in the cell or a, a compound you could basically treat a plant with that would get its immune system sort of improved? You know, that's possible. Um, there could be, a, I think if we have a better understanding of um, how the immune system is working, we can exploit that to generate more resistant plants. So that could either be through traditional breeding, where we maybe, if we know some genes are very important, um, we can use that to just cross those in from other species, or we could actually use that for genetic engineering, where we might be able to engineer something um, that we could put into plants to make them more resistant um, to a variety of different pathogens. This is a field that seems to be holding a lot of promise. Are there any breakthroughs around the corner, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of interesting work that's being done on um, plant uh, immunity and plant disease resistance. There's been some, certainly some great successes with uh, virus resistance um, and generating transgenic plants that are highly resistant to viruses, and so those are commercially available now, particularly in squashes. Um, and I think that there's been some, some interesting breakthroughs where 
scientists have found that um, genes that would work in uh, one plant species can actually be transferred across species. So something that might work in tomato um, can also, in some cases, work with uh, potato and rice um, and corn. So I think that learning something about one particular um, uh, uh, type of crop can then be applicable to other crops and so that's particularly exciting and in some some respects we've been able to sh that's been able to be shown in the last couple of years. This would come into the headline of, of genetically modified organisms, GMOs, which a lot of people I think are are scared of but but I suppose that Dutton Wright putting a gene from one thing to another this this is again the sky's the limit on what we might be able to accomplish. Right and you know you have to think about for genetically modified um, if you're doing traditional breeding and you're crossing in, you know, a wild species of tomato to a cultivated species of tomato, you're really introducing a lot more genes than you would be for genetically modified foods. So for genetically modified foods, you're basically, it's precision agriculture where you're introducing one gene and you're not necessarily introducing many other genes. And a lot of times now these genes are not necessarily, you know, from um, non-plant species. It might be, you could you could use one gene from potato and put it into, into tomato and uh, generate something that might be more resistant. And I think with, with the issues that we have with global agriculture, we really need to think about all different aspects, both um, using um, technology for genetically modified plants as well as using technology to advance traditional breeding. Um, because I think that the, there are so many challenges that are out there that we really need to consider all of the options. Well, I understand that some of the research that you've done here is related to the whole controversy about lettuce and some contamination with E. coli and all that. Uh, what sort of stuff have you been looking into in that, in that regard? In that regard, what we're interested in um, is to look and investigate to see if the bacteria that are normally associated with, with lettuce leaves uh, might be able to help us predict whether um, there is... Uh, conditions that, that would be conducive for E. coli contamination. So if you, uh, you this may have been an experiment that uh, your readers might have done in, in college or maybe high school. If you take a petri dish and you open it up to the air, you can mm -hmm. see that there's, and just even for 10 minutes, right, or less than that, and you close it and you, and then you let, let it sit for uh, a week or so, you can see that really there's lots of different microbes that are around. So we don't live in an aseptic world. And the same thing happens for agriculture. So if you go in uh, to any farm and you want to look at a plant, there's actually a large amount of bacteria that are associated with the surface of plants. And most of them are actually not harmful at all to the plant or to us. They're just there. Uh, and in some cases, they can actually be beneficial to the plant. So you have these plant uh, growth promoting bacteria that are there as well. So we know that bacteria are extremely small, if you think about it, on the surface of a leaf. Um, and that they interact with other bacteria. So our idea was, well, maybe um, bacteria that are there on the surface of the leaf, they can influence the ability of other bacteria to survive and persist. So what we've been doing over the last couple of years is we've been going in and sampling uh, fields in Salinas Valley um, and also in Imperial and Yuma growing districts, which are the main lettuce production regions in um, the United States. And we've been uh, sequencing the bacteria that are associated with those leaves. And interestingly, what we can find is that some that the bacterial populations are quite diverse across all of these different regions. But within a particular microclimate, um, there's a diagnostic fingerprint. So we think that uh, some of this information might be useful for maybe tracking back if there was a contamination event to try to rule out areas that 
uh, potentially were not involved if we had these fingerprints associated with different microclimates. And now what we're interested in doing is going back in and looking at fields over multiple production cycles to see if there was any type of a contamination event. How did those bacterial populations change? So the overall idea is to try to figure out are there bacteria that are associated with the presence of E. coli, either positively or negatively, and can we use that for enhanced uh, testing strategies? My thought was that based on what you'd be doing, you'd, you'd want to uh, maybe develop a better lettuce, find a way to make the plant uh, to deal with the bacteria more yeah. effectively, but you're taking a much more broad approach. You're looking at the bacteria and how they interrelate. Yeah, yeah, and actually we have um, an interesting project with uh, Johan Laveau, who is a another assistant professor in the department, and he's interested in actually looking at different types of lettuce to see are there different lettuce genotypes that are more resistant um, to um, uh, E. coli than others. So are there some where, you know, E. coli just doesn't, doesn't want to um, uh, be able to survive or persist at all? So you may be able to help this whole epidemic of these things with, with different, uh, different strains of the plant. Yeah, it's, it's possible, yeah. I guess a final question, Dr. Coker. There's a lot of things out there that are, that are scaring people about plants, and, and I know we talked to Dr. Dubkovsky, I think it was, about wheat some time ago, and he's also received some grant money to look into that. Are there some, there's some um, pathogens out there in the plant world that uh, we should know about or you're, you're particularly scared about? Well, I think some of the wheat rust pathogens, I think, are particularly troublesome. And some of the reason for that is because um, these grains are staple food for a large number of um, uh, millions of people, uh, both in the U.S. and, and worldwide. And uh, the issue with some of these wheat rust pathogens is that they disperse by spores. And so these spores can travel really large periods and long periods of time across oceans. Um, and so I think probably the scariest pathogens would be those types of pathogens if they haven't been introduced yet into the United States or other countries. Their potential for spread is, is high. And so I think there's a, a large number of uh, individuals now that are focused on that, including Dr. Dukoski doing some excellent work with that um, to try to develop sources of resistance um, at, the, at the plant level uh, so that we can be better prepared for the, that type of an outbreak. And your lab here, is it, uh, is it named after you? It's not named after me. <laughs> so who, who preceded you with the same name? Well, well, but, I guess they call it the Coker Lab because okay. I'm the uh, professor that runs the lab. All right, so it's more of an unofficial title. It's an unofficial title. All right, very good. <laughs> but everyone that works in, in the lab is, is really... Do I think I've been very fortunate to have a great group of people that work with me um, that are also very excited about plant disease and plant immunology. So uh, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Well, as someone who grew up on a farm and, and, and attended this university, I know, you know agriculture is so damned important. And I'm glad, again, I'm glad that we have a department of plant pathology. And I'm, I'm glad you're at work. And I'm sure there's going to be some great breakthroughs in the, in the years to come. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> It's a great pleasure speaking with Dr. Coker, and I must say that no sooner had that interview been conducted than I turned to the pages of New Scientist magazine to find the following. During Earth's biggest mass extinction 251 million years ago, usually tame soil fungi ran amok, decimating most of the world's trees. A repeat coup is possible if climate change weakens trees too much. Noted the magazine, the Permian extinction saw 95% of the species on Earth wiped out, 
which dwarfed the KT extinction that ended the dinosaur's reign. According to Mark Stefton of Imperial College London, an additional effect of the vast volcanic eruptions that triggered the extinction was a global fungal plague. Sefton had long been intrigued by a mysterious layer of fossilized strands and rocks that formed at the end of the Permian epoch. You can find it all around the globe, he says, and you don't see it anywhere else in the geologic record. The strands were first thought to be opportunistic fungi that feasted on plants after they died, although some researchers thought they were algae, which couldn't have eaten the trees. To settle the question, Sefton teamed up with Henrik Visser of the Utrecht University in the Netherlands, along with Cindy Louie at the University of California, Berkeley. Together they found that the strands looked like a group of modern fungi called Rhizoctonia, implying a fungal takeover. Rhizoctonia lurks in soils, waiting to attack plants whose immune systems are weakened. Septon thinks their Permian counterparts attacked and killed trees, which would have been weakened by heat stress, drought, and acidification due to the volcanic eruptions. Although this is scary stuff, it's not clear that fungi could again run amok, according to Stephen Running at the University of Montana in Missoula. Most modern plant pathogens can only attack one genus or even species, which limits the damage they can do. They note the closest modern-day analog is the heavily polluted Black Triangle of Eastern Europe, where acidification from Soviet-era industry killed or damaged all the trees, which were then set upon by fungi. So there you have it, another reason why we need to pay better attention to climate change. If things continue to heat up, our plants may suffer, and if they suffer, we surely will follow. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in Segment 3.